Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Beautiful people. I am so thrilled today to have my friend, my new friend, but also my colleague and partner at Waco Therapy and Holistic Wellness Services, Megan Molnar, here to share a story with us. Um, here's the thing about Megan I'm incredibly picky about who I work with um, after having worked in toxic work environments quite a bit and opening my private practice. Um, it, it took six years for me to hire another therapist. And this woman is remarkable. She is so special. Her hair is sunset orange and pink. And she is both physically beautiful and soulfully beautiful. Um, and, and she's fun and she makes me laugh and inspires me. And we are still getting to know each other, but I, I fangirl over her and it, I'm just like profoundly humbled that she wanted to work with me. I'm like, wait, am I good enough for Megan? I want her. But anyway, so this is why I'm kind of my energy super high right now. I'm a little bit geeking out because I love Megan so much. Um, and she's going to be sharing her story that involves um, medical trauma, something that I've also experienced, but in different ways and um, just kind of the process of healing as a human being from the things that happen in our lives. Um, so welcome, Megan, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. You said so many nice things. I'm a little overwhelmed. I know I overwhelm people. <laughs> I'm like wiggling out all my energy over here. Okay. I, I overwhelm people sometimes. I just feel so big. I When I went into the office this morning, I was like, is Megan here? I love her, and I was like, I love her too. It's, it's so nice, like getting excited to go to work, not just yes. for clients, but for coworkers. Oh, for the vibe, yes, this this vibe that we are able to hold in that space of just like be your, your human self, mm -hmm. no judgment. Let's accept each other. Let's laugh. Let's cry. Let's there's there's nothing off limits. Just being absolutely. human. Absolutely. So we'll tell the listeners, and I'm going to be hearing about some of this stuff for yeah, the first absolutely. time, kind of about like um, just kind of your, your early life background before we get into um, your cancer diagnosis and, and all of the things that happened there. Yeah. Okay. So I was born and raised in Austin um, when I was you know, 15, parents got divorced, um, lived with my mom um, after that, and then my now stepdad. Um, I would say other than, you know, the divorce, pretty normal childhood. Um, everyone in my family, knock on wood, was very healthy. Um, you know, nothing super significant, I would say, you know, trauma-wise. I would, thought I was really, really lucky. Nothing was going to touch me. I'm like, okay. Um, and then I went to Baylor for nursing for two years, changed it to social work. Um, I always wanted to be an oncology nurse. Like, that's what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, and so my first internship was I worked with oncology clients inpatient at a major hospital um, in Texas 
Um, and then I did grad school at Baylor, and then my graduate internship was at a children's hospital. So I really liked the medical field. Um, and then at that point, I went back, and my first job, I just I took that um, oncology and trauma position back. So that was my first job, working with oncology patients. Um, I had to learn a lot. No one in my family had ever had cancer, okay. which is fantastic. Um, but it was just very interesting from an outside perspective what that looked like. Mm -hmm. And how old were you at that time when you graduated? Oh, gosh. Um, let me see. I had to take a little victory lap because I changed my major after two years. So I think that would have been 23. Okay. Um, yeah, 23 because that was internship and everything. 24 was, um, yeah grad school and then working with oncology clients. Um, after that, I worked for a local nonprofit for five or so years. Um, and I had only been there. It hadn't even been that long. Um, I had been dating my husband for a year at that point. We got engaged, planning the wedding. Um, and then I had noticed like I was losing weight, but in my head I was like, oh, like it must be wedding stress moving. I moved from Austin to Waco. Um, I had a new job. Um, and I also was like trying not to gain weight. I wasn't necessarily like, working out a bunch, but in, in my head it was making sense of like, okay, I'm going to fit in my dress. This is fine. Mm -hmm. Other than that, no symptoms, nothing. Um, and then I was eventually diagnosed, it was about three weeks before my wedding. Yeah, tell us about that process of being diagnosed and, you know, how did you, did you find a lump or kind of tell us what happened there? And yeah, so I was, um, I was laying in bed on my back um, and I remember my left hand for whatever reason kind of like grazed my chest and I felt it was like a ping pong size ball lump. And I think a lot of people, so first off, I didn't know how to do a breast exam. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was never taught. Mm -hmm. um, when we think about sex ed in Texas, among the many deficiencies is uh, there's no self-examination being taught. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's because, oh, it doesn't affect young people. Right. It's that young people don't have cancer. Absolutely. And while I liked, you know, my OBGYN and PCPs in the past, um, sometimes, you know, they'll do it for you at your well woman exam, but they're not like walking you through how to do that. So this, um, I think a lot of people think that the lumps, you really have to be like feeling for them, but mine was really towards the top of my chest to the point when I felt the bump, I almost felt like it was growing off of my like chest wall. Like it was very high up, um, luckily because I felt it mm -hmm. and I felt it and I immediately shot up and called Nick, my husband, or no, he was my fiance at the time into the room. And I was like, do you feel like, I just want to make sure you feel this. And he was like, oh yeah, like it was kind of movable. It was very hard. Like it was a definitive lump. Um, and for some reason I had this gut feeling and I called my mom because usually if you feel something, you can kind of like ride it off. Right. Mm -hmm. I called my mom. Um, and I said, something is wrong. And I, f I knew it. I felt it. Mm -hmm. And now if I talk to Nick or my mom, they're both like, we knew it was bad. Like something told all of us it was bad. So I did not um, love my doctor at the time, my, uh, my gynecologist, but I called and I said, hey, I have this lump. I was not taken seriously. They were like, come in and we'll feel it. Um, I don't know if they just didn't believe that I didn't feel lump. So I went in, my husband, my fiance came with me. Um, they felt it and they said, yeah, you should definitely. Oh, and it, was, it wasn't even my doctor. I think they sent in like a nurse or something. Mm -hmm. They're like, yeah, you should get this biopsied. I said, okay, like when can we do this? And they wanted to put it off a week or something. I was like, absolutely not, absolutely not. Um, and one thing is so many people don't do this, but I had worked in the medical field and I know how important advocacy is and you have to advocate for yourself, but yes. that's intimidating for people to do because doctors, I mean, that's, you know, there's so much power there and prestige. Yeah. Um, and so pushing back is uncomfortable. But I said, you know, I need to be seen or I'll go somewhere else. So one of the things also yeah. is that we are taught to trust doctors as yes. if they are God. Yes. And so, you know, advocating for yourself as a patient is such a challenge. 
you know, with my medical mm-hmm. trauma, I knew something was very wrong after my surgery. I had gastric bypass when I was 20 and I was told that I was being a med seeker. It was laparoscopic mm. and it turned out I had a complete and total bowel obstruction and then had severe complications, had to go in for second surgery, mm-hmm. aspirated. But this like, you know, they are the ones that are in control. And so I guess I'm a med seeker. I guess there's nothing wrong. Yes. But learning that, like, I've got to use my voice. Absolutely. And I mean, to this day, like I had a procedure recently done and I was in so much pain and they're like, do you need more medication? And I said, no. And that reaction was from working in a hospital setting and seeing people labeled as drug seeking. It made me, you know, even to this day, hesitate. Oh, I guess, you know, I don't want to ask for too much. I don't want them to label me and then I can't get anything. Um, But it was also kind of pulled back the curtain when it came to, it's kind of like Oz (laughs) and you see it's just a regular person there. So these men and women that are held to such high regards as doctors, just like every profession, there's good apples and bad apples. And I would see the way that some working with oncology patients, how some of the doctors and nurses would talk about them and talk about clients. And so I think that that benefited me because I knew that these are just people, um, but I know that that's not the case for everyone. Yeah. Um, so, so you were able to advocate for yourself yes. to get it biopsied mm-hmm, sooner. Mm-hmm. And we went in. Um, I had to go in by myself. They wouldn't allow Nick back in the room. Um, I was laying there. They did the biopsy, which is they take a very long metal kind of like rod puncture. Um, well, before that, they did an ultrasound. And while the nurse is doing the ultrasound, um, she called in a doctor to come look at it. And I was like, that's probably not good. That's the um, answer not good. Um, yeah. So I had an idea that like, all right. So, but the thing is the whole time she kept telling me basically, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. This is nothing. You're too young. It's going to be a fat deposit. It's not a big deal. So many people told me that. I had friends tell me that toxic positivity is something you're really passionate about. Don't do it. <laughs> I hate it. But, um, so they did the biopsy And I knew, like, man, that's not, like, it's not going to be good. And I remember so distinctly, she hugged me and said, don't lose sleep over this. It's nothing. And and that stuck with me because it was my first experience of, like, not being validated. Just, like, Mm -hmm. black and white, plain as day. Like, this is nothing. Don't lose sleep over it. But deep down, I knew it was something. And so I was already, like confused and you know and so I wanted to continue living life like nothing was happening so um, at work I I still went to they said we'll let you know in like I think was four to five days so I went up to a work conference like Fort Worth or something like that um, by myself next day back and three days into it um, I got a call while I was sitting in the conference and I missed it so during a break, I went into like an empty office and I called them back and I was leaning against the wall and a woman I had never spoken to. I don't know if she was a nurse, an assistant, but I don't know. She just said, hi, Megan, unfortunately, you have breast cancer. And it just hit me. <laughs> and I mean, the first thing I said was, but I'm getting married in three weeks. And they said, oh, yeah, honey, we all know we're really sorry about that. Like the women had been talking about it. And then the second thing I said was, okay, but how do I tell my mom? Mm-hmm. And and it was like, I didn't know how, I'm, I'm an only child, I'm very close with my mom. And I was like, I can't, like, I can't, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So after that, I, um, you know, I, I started calling um, people. I was so concerned about other people for some reason. It's easier for me to deflect (laughs) that I went up to the person running the conference and I'm like, I have to leave, but it's, it's my fault. Not my company's. Can we get their money back? Like, (laughs) so they refunded them. And I was like, if I can control that, it's okay. Um, yeah. So my husband drove up and immediately we were, our go-to is laughing about it. I also, you know, Trauma response. Absolutely. <laughs> so we're like laughing and we're like, you know, just just little jokes that didn't even, you know, make sense. I was very stressed at work. And he's like, man, I bet this job gave you cancer. And I was like, right? And like, and we were laughing about it. We drove back to Waco. And then he, I accidentally woke him up the next morning because the bed was shaking because I was crying so hard. Mm-hmm. 
it had finally hit me. And Nick, I remember looking him looking at me saying, it's not really funny anymore. Um, and that's when it really first, I think, hit us. Yeah. I was about to ask, like, did you let yourself lose it? <laughs> but it's not even a letting yourself lose it. You just lost it. I just lost it. I, w- I don't know if I started crying before I woke up or yeah. what it was, but it finally all, like, I woke up in my bed because I was diagnosed in a foreign, I'd never been in that, I mean, building, you know, twice. And so it was very, didn't, it was dreamlike. It didn't feel real. But waking yeah. up in my bed knowing this is still a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because someone called a nurse navigator calls you. And I mean, I ha- still have a picture on my phone. It's like every single day for the next two weeks, it was tests. And it, I mean, it's all of a sudden you're sucked in and it's a whirlwind. So it becomes your new life. CT, MRI, this, that, this, that. I'm having to take off work. Oh, but I'm still getting married in two weeks. Um, I remember an, another way for people to advocate is, is second opinions, which can be hard if people, oh, I don't want to hurt the first doctor or I should trust them. And But the first um, surgeon I went to, we went in there and we were thinking, okay, they're just going to like scoop this tumor out. Like I'm young. I have no history. Mm-hmm. Turns out later I did not have the gene. We're like, it's going to be fine. I go in. My parents drove up from Austin and um, – the doctor was like, okay, yeah, blah, 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 and then chemo and then radiation. And we were like, what? what? And so the doctor left, and they're like, I'll be back in a minute. And I started hyperventilating, and I was like, I need to, we need to go. This is enough information for the day. And I'm like breathing, and my mom's like, no, like we have to finish. And I was like, I can't do it. I can't do what I need out of this room. Um, and I asked them, I said, what is this going to look like, you know, in a couple weeks, still hyper-focusing on my wedding because it's not cancer-related. And they said, we don't know if you'll be able to walk down that aisle. Um, and luckily, you know, I talked to my parents, and they were like, hey, you're probably going to be recovering a lot in Austin. Maybe we should look at a doctor, you know, in Austin. I went there, and it was like, why would they? Absolutely, you'll be able to walk down the aisle. Also, mm-hmm. instead of giving you a port, because I had a strapless dress, we'll give you a pick line in your arm, You'll get chemo the week before, and then we'll take it out. So you'll have nothing hanging on you on your wedding day. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was told before, like, I thought I'd be walking down in a wheelchair with, like, an IV. I mean, mm-hmm. if I hadn't sought a second opinion, that was the first time a second opinion really saved me. Um, I wouldn't have known that that was even an option. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So as you were approaching your wedding day, kind of what was your physical health doing and looking like how were you Mm. feeling like were you able to be present what was that like for you I was able it was a great distraction I mean while you know I think the worst part anybody with you know who's going through being diagnosed with something um, is the waiting between scans and results right so luckily I was getting all of these tests done but in the meantime I was going to make up trials with my mom and I was Mm. getting my final dress dress fitting and I was so it was a great distraction. Um, about a week and a half before my wedding, I had my first chemo treatment. Um, it The type of cancer I had, it was triple negative breast cancer, um, which means that there's no direct um, way to combat. They kind of throw stuff out and see what works. Mm-hmm. It's not it doesn't it's not affected by hormones or anything like that. Um and because of that, it was very aggressive and it was growing very fast. I did not have time for fertility treatments. I didn't have time for so much stuff that other people would kind of have the option of doing. Um, and so I remember I got the chemo and afterwards we went, I went home and I said, okay, let's go get our marriage license. Like, let's do it. It it also felt like I needed to rush things because Mm -hmm. I wanted to get married to this man. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I have a picture of me in the chair getting chemo. I had a cold cap on, which is something you can use to prevent hair loss. Um, I wanted to have hair, you know, for my wedding. And, um, later that day, there's a picture of us with our, um, our certificate, like our marriage certificate. And then there's a picture like three hours later of me in bed and I'm miserable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it finally kicked in because all this, I was like riding the steroid high for a little while. And then, and then I was miserable. And I think that first time of realizing how bad it was, I was like, this is going to be harder than I thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is going to be harder than I thought. Um, what, so is, yeah. what does it feel like chemo? Like I, you know, mm-hmm. I've, I've never had cancer, you know, you read things, but 
I don't often hear, I know people say they feel sick, but what was it like for you? Yeah. So the first one I had is, um, AC, I mean, there's a longer name for it, but a lot of people call it like the red devil, which is not hopeful when someone tells you, I think a nurse referred to it as that too. And I'm like, can we not, um, call it that? So it's, it looks literally like you're, it comes in a giant syringe. It looks like a jello shot. I mean, it looks like cherry jello, but like liquid. And the nurses have to gear up and wear gloves when they give it to you. It's so like toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you have to, your partner has to wear condoms because it can, in your body, they can get in contact with this poison. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll say I was like eating my favorite sandwich um, because you're there for a couple hours before they're giving you steroids and Benadryl. So you're kind of tired, um, to make sure reactions and stuff like that. So it's a very long process getting chemo. Then after that, they'll finally start it. So they come up, they hook you up with your port and they slowly push in this red liquid. So you can see it. I cannot drink red liquids. The red liquid is like mm-hmm. a thing for me. And I was eating my sandwich and in the middle of them pushing it all of a sudden, bam, I could not eat my sandwich anymore. Your, cha- your taste changes mm-hmm. that quickly. So what does chemo feel like? Um, it's just draining. It feels like you've been hit by a bus. Um, after my wedding, I stopped wearing the cold caps because I realized it was just more hassle than it was worth. So when your hair starts falling out, your hair feels like if you've ever had an really tight ponytail mm-hmm. and your scalp is sore, that happens, starts coming out in clumps. Um let's see, you bruise really easily. Uh, But actually one of the worst parts is the day after chemo, you have to go back in to get something called a new Lasta shot. And that amps up white blood cell production in your body. And it gives you something called bone pain Mm -hmm. because your bones go into overdrive. That's probably some of the worst pain I've ever felt. Um, And I've had kidney stones since I was little, but the bone pain it's like it's just pain radiating <laughs> from mm-hmm. your insides. Um, and it's it's pretty bad. Um, some of the other chemos, they're worse. Some are worse than others, but it's just an all over. I mean, you're poisoning your body mm-hmm. and hoping some of it dies, but obviously, you know, not all of it. Um, but it can do a lot of harm. And I think about you as a woman experiencing this, a young woman Coming up to your wedding day, which culturally it's like we feel like this is our day to be the most beautiful, most feminine version of ourselves. And then at the same time, you know, having those treatments, but then right afterwards losing your hair. Um, Did you end up having surgery on your breasts? Was was the whole breast Mm -hmm. removed? Kind of what? Yeah. So in, as far as just that wedding day, I look back on those pictures and it was before I even had, you know, my port scar. And so I feel like that was the last Mm. old me because Mm. two days after my wedding, I had second treatment. We didn't get a honeymoon or anything like that. So it just, we were in the thick of it. Um, as far as, so after I had that red chemo at first, you could feel the the tumor had shrunk. You couldn't feel it anymore, which is fantastic. Then they started me on the second chemo and it began to grow back, but faster. So we had to immediately stop treatment and I had to get a lumpectomy. Um, and then they gave me a choice. They said, you can either get a mastectomy and ha- so you're going to have to do more chemo, which I did, but you can either do a mastectomy and completely have your breasts amputated, or you can keep the lumpectomy, but then you have to have radiation. Um, and that's a very personal choice for different people. Um, I met with a radiation oncologist and they told me, Hey, the risks for you, because there can be, um, secondary cancers that pop up from that long-term issues with, um, different places. I'm also super light skinned. So I knew my skin would just burn. Burn. Mm -hmm. Um, and I said at this point, it's not worth them. Take them both. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to do this again. We don't know why it popped up in the first place. So it's not even like I can you know, avoid or things to look out, take them. I don't want the radiation. I want them both gone. That will make me feel better. Um, and I felt really good about that decision. So I had both of them, um, amputated. I was 26 Mm -hmm. and I, um, they offered something called deep reconstruction where they would take fat from other parts of my body and then make new breasts. And and that's what I ended up doing. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. How did that impact your self-image and self-esteem? <laughs> um, you know, it's it's interesting because so many people would say, oh, you get a free boob job. And now you get lipo and a free boob job. <laughs> Fuck all y'all. I know. And I feel like when you say those things, people are like, no, people did not say that. You would be surprised what comes out of people's mouth. You would be surprised the amount of people that would come up to me and say, oh, my mom or my aunt or my someone, someone had that and they died. Like, uh, how is this helpful to me? Exactly. Exactly. And so, and Nick would get those, those comments too. But yeah, um. So it affected my self-esteem. I mean, I have scarring. That didn't bother me. For me, it really was more how it affected my mental health and how I saw myself. But it made me explore just how breasts are tied with femininity Um, and not just sex appeal. But when it comes to, you know, I was having to think to myself, I'll never be able to breastfeed. What does that look like? Anytime I see a breast is best comment somewhere, it hurts me. It hurts me. And I won't even go down that rabbit hole. Like, yes, I understand. If you can breastfeed, go for it. Absolutely. But can, I don't can care. Can go down that rabbit hole? Because for <laughs> yes, me, I, having, that, having breast reconstruction mm-hmm. surgery myself at 21 years old, not really mm-hmm. understanding those implications, not having someone really talk through them with me. Um, not even thinking about children because I was single and, you know, to then when I had children, Sophie, I had it at 31 and trying to breastfeed her and having like, I would pump for two hours and I would get like an eighth of an ounce from both breasts. And that was all I could produce. And she was on my breast all day, every day to the point where they were bleeding and cracked because breast is best. My mm-hmm. mom breastfed all of our children, all my friends who are crunchy granola, Chip and Joanna Gaines yeah. fans are like, this is the most, the best way. <clears throat> and I felt so much shame and guilt yes. for not being able to provide the best for my child without ever empathically connecting to my own story mm-hmm. of the surgery that caused me to be in this position because it just felt like my own failure. Absolutely. And I think there's also a lot of that uh, blame of, you know, I imagine with you, should I have had this surgery? For me, it was, should I have kids? I mean, is that fair to them? You know, and it it did soften the blow a little bit that I, I was allergic to milk and I mean, they didn't figure that out for a little bit. So I was raised on formula and I'd be like, well, I'm like, pretty normal <laughs> like Somewhat I think I'm doing okay um and so that was helpful in in the back of my mind knowing like okay like I'm fine but then also I was like but I got cancer like is that you know I mean yeah. it makes you question everything and um yeah so there's a lot of that yeah so really my femininity um really you know I was I was in a committed relationship but I had friends who had breast cancer who were dating and it was when do I tell them? Do mm. I just take off my shirt and they see the scars and then it's like odd or do I warn them first or how, you know? Mm. Um, so it can change your, your self image. But honestly, for me, I just found that I, so much of my worldview changed. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause there was one particular time where I think I was probably the closest to death I was hospitalized for quite a while and I didn't know I would leave. And I talked to Nick now. He didn't think I would leave the hospital. And Mm -hmm. I just don't care about so much stuff. I don't care what other people think about me. I could, I look better. Yeah, but I love food and my body can move and I'm thankful that it can move. And so just facing your own mortality um, is just you know, it's a real mind fuck and in the best way. I was going to say it's, it's strangely having almost died a couple times myself. (laughs) I'm like, what's wrong with I'm a cat with nine lives. I feel like I'm on my ninth, but we'll see. But there's something, a beautiful gift that comes Mm -hmm. from almost dying, whether that be physically or psychologically and trauma and abuse that it frees you up to say, this is my one life. And I'm going to live it. I'm going to enjoy it. Yes. And stop giving so many shits about what other people think. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's all of that. And I had, you know, prior to my diagnosis, I had started going to a therapist and doing EMDR for prior trauma that had occurred to me earlier and was really triggered by the big Baylor scandals with the football players. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was doing EMDR and no, I wasn't doing EMDR. I I later did that for cancer, but I was working through that trauma and then I was diagnosed. And so there was a lot put on hold mental health wise, but Mm -hmm. it's also just not something when it comes to femininity or motherhood or fertility or mental health, it's not something that's talked about in general in a lot of, in a lot of, you know, with oncology, but I'm sure a lot of other major, major chronic or, you know, serious diagnoses because doctors are there to do what they do. And I respect that. If you're a cardiologist, you are working on the heart. They Um, fix, they fix and not heal. Absolutely. And it's, and it's, I had to be the one to say like, Hey, I have a question. How's this going to affect my fertility? And I was told, and I know I went back to my husband recently and I was like, you were in the room. Tell me we heard the same thing. I was told you're 26 it's going to be fine. Um, and I didn't have the time to save anyway, but I was like, okay, it's going to be fine because I'm young or whatever. And then, you know, find out this year, oh, no, it's not fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- I think that there's too much of that. It's they're not their jobs to worry about other things. I was never talked to about mental health. I was never checked in on with mental health with any practitioners. Um, I had one doctor who told me, hey, we can save your nipples or because one of the doctors was like I do not keep nipples like you will have to lose them because sometimes cancer cells can like linger or something so I got a second opinion again and she was like oh no that's really important to your self-image and and like you need to keep those we will find a way for you to keep those and so there were little pieces that were affirming validating um to how I felt but no one really talked about the things outside of the physical yeah, yeah issues yeah you know i i don't know if we've talked about this but one of my heroes is my father he's a surgeon and you know surgeon personalities are typically like real machismo even mm-hmm. even with women sometimes <laughs> mm-hmm. like like i'm god i'm going to cut you open and my father is the most gentle human being, and he's actually world famous in his field. It does happen to be colorectal surgery, <laughs> which is maybe the least sexy, least sexy <laughs> specialty in surgery. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. But his patients, um, his success rate was so high and his patients just adore him because, and we would talk about this, he could see their fear. He could see their anxiety. He would sit with them, talk with them. He would if the traditional approaches that were being taught didn't work, he would research. He really pioneered a lot of genetic research in a specific colon cancer syndrome. And, you know, one of my most proud moments was a conversation that we had where he said, you know, with this familial adenomatous polyposis, this hereditary colon cancer syndrome, anecdotally, there are higher rates of suicide in these patients and nobody's talking about that. So, We ended up doing a study together, um, and I talked to a lot of patients, and we did surveys, and, you know, it it showed very clearly that they had PTSD and and complex PTSD because it's a guarantee with that diagnosis that you will have cancer. Mm -hmm. So, and it's, uh, I think, 50% likelihood of passing it to children. So it's the, like, intergenerational death and dying and loss and the, Mm -hmm. the constant, like, surgeries and the all the things and so being able to describe PTSD as a component of it was really groundbreaking for his field and having doctors like my dad that look at the whole human and quality of life and mental health and all of those things it's a game changer absolutely absolutely and I mean that that's just so fantastic that he was able to identify that that was a need and kind of look into it I I've I've cultivated 
a team of doctors that I love, but that's another thing you have to advocate for yourself. You have to be willing to shop around and find out what you want. Just like with therapists. Yes. Shop around for doctors. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, go in, have your questions ready or just the vibe of it. I mean, I, and they happen to be women except for my OBGYN, but the rest of them, I mean, they'll talk to me. I mean, they'll hugs, like I'm a hugger, but like they'll give hugs. We laugh. They're very real with me. Um, and that's what I needed. Some people want a blank slate, just like sometimes they want a blank slate of a therapist, you know, like mm-hmm. I am here to do this job and not connect with you on kind of like a human level whatsoever. I didn't want that. Um, but I still am going back. And anytime I have any chance to talk about or advocate um, mental health and mental PT or not, not mental medical PTSD, yes. um, just that medical, I don't know why we don't have a more holistic view of when I worked at the children's hospital and, you know, medical neglect is an mm. issue, you know, and medical PTSD is an issue. Why are we not looking at these things as just bigger pictures and how much they can affect um, people's lives going going forward? Yeah, you can have a cancer surgically removed, but that is not fixing or healing Mm-mm. a person, Mm-mm. you know, and just thinking about, I'm so grateful for who you are and the fact that you are a therapist yourself. And so like knowing and monitoring your own mental health mm-hmm. during it because nobody else was and then advocating. But I just, it makes me so sad to think about the general population who go in, they're cancer free, but their lives are completely altered Absolutely. And, and I have to say, one of the things that I found was moving into, um, so NED um, is a phrase that people will throw around if they've had cancer. That's no evidence of disease. Um, just because NED and remission and those things are kind of um, controversial in different like cancer circles because um, you know, are you really in remission? You don't know if there's still cancer cells. So I think NED is appropriate because it's like there's no evidence of disease. Like on the scans, we're not seeing anything um, because you still have to. I mean, for every six months after that, I was going to get a CT, a bone scan um, every six months for the past five years. It follows you. It does not stop. There will be a time where I only go once a year and then it'll be further and further. But every... Um, Every headache, every sprained ankle, um, every cough, is it in my lungs? Is it in my brain? Is it in my bones? Um, You know, you just have to wonder. And that's what we call, so, you know, you're going through treatment, but you've been declared NED, then you're in the survivorship stage. Um, And I I think, and and with the many people I've talked to, that's scarier and almost more traumatic than being in treatment. You're not actively fighting anything, and the scans are saying it's not there. But cancer is aggressive, and it can be very sneaky, yeah. and you don't know. Um, and that's when I think a lot of people, as I say, like the dust settles, and you look around, and you just see the carnage. Look at my scars. Look at the friendships I've lost. Look at the people I know I've lost. There's survivor's guilt. There are triggers. Um And then there's nobody there to talk to about it or to support. (laughs) Well, I think about that kind of you noticing a cough, a sneeze, a sprained ankle. Mm -hmm. As you know, when we think about PTSD, there's a like four symptoms that have to be present. But this hypervigilance Mm -hmm. is one of them. And so it's like every sensation in your body becomes a danger cue for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's and it's so interesting because usually a lot of those danger cues can be external. But this is also like internal, you know, like mm-hmm. I can't see it, but I can feel it. Am I really feeling it? Am I crazy? Am mm-hmm. I, you know, it's, and then, you know, luckily this was not the case for me, but I've talked to a lot of people where, hey, they go to their doctor, their doctor, no, it's probably fine. Um, okay, well, I'm not going to have a doctor that's going to gaslight me <laughs> and, mm-hmm. or just drown me in toxic positivity and keep promising me it's fine. I want to see the data and I also know that I was at a very big advantage because I was fortunate enough to have good health insurance Mm -hmm. so that I was able to get those scans. I was able to get therapy and have access to therapy. I just, you know, I'm in a lot of Facebook groups. I've been in for years with the same people with breast cancer and sometimes they'll post and 
not sleeping a certain sound did this or something did this and it's like that is PTSD like you need to talk to somebody about that um you almost have to work harder after treatment um to, to to recover from everything it's it's not just physical yeah you know I think of with trauma like while you're in the midst of the trauma it's easier because you're surviving and so mm-hmm. you just do what you have to do. But as you said, when the dust settles and you realize what you've been through and you realize like mm-hmm. what you are going through now and it's these like invisible reverberations of yeah. that trauma that exists inside of you, it can be such an isolating experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, feeling like, you know, you're so alone. And with a lot of people with, you know, debilitating diseases, there's also just kind of like, um, you know, little populations within those systems. And I mean, I met one person the whole time I was sick and they lived in Austin. That was within five years of me. So like being someone young with breast cancer, I could not find anybody to relate to. Um, you know, I I just, I try to talk to other women as much as I can about breast cancer. I would go and speak at Baylor and felt like every time I would have a talk, I would find out later that, um, at least one person in the class had somebody they knew close to them die of breast cancer. One guy felt a lump. He went and got checked out. One female felt a lump. She went and checked out and got a biopsy. Like this is common. We need to be talking about this. Um, you need to be performing exams, feel it on the first is like a good reminder, set it in your phone. Um, but it's, it's because the other thing is with the younger people are a lot of people like, Oh, just get a mammogram, just get a mammogram. If you have dense breasts, a mam when I had, when we had, when I had the tumor and I got a mammogram, nothing showed up. But on the ultrasound, you could see it clear as day, Mm -hmm. but mammograms aren't a catch all. Mm-hmm. I want to ask about just because I'm curious because mm-hmm. this is <laughs> kind of my story too like having PTSD while also being in the mental health field mm-hmm. and treating patients with trauma ha- what was it like for you to be a therapist working while going through and continuing to go through your own trauma um, I would say that I was prepared in the worst ways in that I wanted to be able to treat myself, <laughs> yes. but like, why can't I do this? But also just taking that experience and the people I had talked to with cancer, I was like, oh my gosh. Cause when I was doing oncology work, I was like, I would have gone back and changed so much. I know that I was never unkind, but I could see it from such a different perspective. Yeah. I would have called doctors on comments that they made. I would have been able to relate so much more and so seeing both sides of it um was humbling and and really interesting um but it also I think made me really resistant (laughs) to wanting to get help myself you know I told myself like this isn't that bad I survived I should be happy because everybody else is inundating you with oh my gosh you're so lucky to be alive like treatment's over like why aren't you happier or whatever I mean I was the most depressed and triggered and upset after Mm -hmm. um after treatment um at first I will say I struggled um I was working with teenagers at the time I was struggling with your bad is not as bad as my bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was hard to go to work for things that felt trivial mm-hmm. when I was like literally fighting for my life. Um, but the more that I did that, the more, I mean, it, I really just learned that, you know, everything is relative, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> your bad is just as bad as my bad. It just feels different, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I think that really working through that um, has humbled me and made me a better therapist, right? Because yeah. it's like um, everybody's bad is bad. And and with everything, like, I have no judgment mm-hmm. towards anyone for any of your life choices. Mm-hmm. There is a reason why we do the things that we do. Um, and we're all just, like, tr- on the daily trying to survive. It's yeah. just a different level um, at that point. So... I think it's 
for my own mental health, it was a struggle, <laughs> but for, it, it made me be a better therapist for other people, I think. Yeah. You know, when I think about the pain of life and the things that we endure and, you know, I have lots of different traumas, um, but I have learned to really appreciate them and it's pain for a purpose that as a therapist allows me to connect at a deeper level and, mm -hmm. and then I become very grateful for the things I've been through. You know, you mentioned the sexual assault scandal at Baylor and <coughs> I my first job out of my doctorate was at Baylor and I had never worked with uh, rape survivors and so all of a sudden I was working with a lot of rape survivors mm -hmm. and just it was traumatic to hear their stories but I couldn't relate but I was as compassionate and very much an advocate for mm -hmm. all my clients which didn't go over well when <laughs> it's trying to be covered up by an institution um, so very much disempowered but I became a trauma therapist on accident and then after my divorce, um, I experienced two rapes, and, and they were by people that were friends mm -hmm. um, and that used alcohol and other substances as a means to, um, to engage in raping me violently. Um, but the PTSD from after that and how phys physical it was, and I was like, holy shit. I had no idea what my patients were yes. going through, and now I get it, and it, it has made me so much better at doing that work with other patients. And also, you know, I remember reaching out to a mentor here in town. There's a therapist that I, I profoundly respect, um, and with all of the trauma that ha has happened over the last three years since leaving um, domestic violence and the, the sexual assaults and um, being shunned by my community and those things, I'm like, how am I still working? Mm -hmm. Well, if number one, I'm a workaholic, so that's one of the ways <laughs> I cope. But she said, you know, Emma, of course you're still doing it. Trauma survivors are great at compartmentalizing. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense. Yes. I'm like, let me divorce myself from my own life and fully be present and immerse myself with your story and, and my feelings of empathy. And so... You know, in a lot of ways, I feel like the job that you and I both have is part of what saved me yes. um, to be able to exit my own experience and, and heal and connect with other people's experiences while also doing my own work. You know, I'm in mm -hmm. like three different types of therapy because <laughs> um, I just want to heal so bad and, and healing is a journey. But you also bring up this like non-judgment of other people's pain and suffering I don't know if you've ever read Viktor Frankl's Man in Search of Meaning I have it in my office yeah <laughs> so he's a concentration camp survivor and he was a psychiatrist and he I didn't connect to this when I read it many years ago and now I understand in the way that you were sharing but he talks about suffering and pain being like smoke that fills up a room no matter how big or small that room is mm -hmm. smoke will always fill the entire room and and acquainting that to Pain is relative, and everybody's worst pain is their worst pain. And so to hear that from someone who survived a concentration camp, validating the pain of any other human, mm -hmm. it just opens up this gifting of being able to enter into the suffering, no matter what the magnitude anybody might think it would be of another person, and honor that and Absolutely. respect it. Absolutely. And I just love hearing you speak to that. I mean, it's one of the beautiful things about you as a therapist that attracted me to you. <laughs> just this full human dignity that you bring to every every patient that you sit with. That's and that's the that's the thing I think about is number one, there's like a little like little selfish piece where I'm like, who did I need? Because I want to be that person. Yeah. I want more of not me specifically but more of people like us who, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, working from teenagers from hard places and then working with people who are exiting the prison system, I tell my clients, I've heard it all. Yeah, there's <laughs> nothing you can say that and will shock me. I love all clients, past and present. I have deep respect in different ways, but it's, it's that, you know, it goes back to the social work um, code of ethics, just the fact that everybody has, I believe, truly, everybody has dignity and worth. They're worthy of dignity and worth. 
um, the worst of the worst, again, relative, but deserve to be heard mm. um, and, and understood. Because I think as humans, that's all we're looking for at the end of the day is to be understood. Mm-hmm. Because to be understood is to be loved and respected and listened to. And, and so much with trauma specifically, which, you know, I'm of the mindset that all mental health issues are rooted in trauma, whether that be <laughs> developmental or like an incident or, or whatever. But trauma and shame are yes. two sides of the same coin. And so when you start to take the shame away through understanding, I am mm-hmm. this way because this thing happened and this thing happened and I made the best choice I could at the time, given my resources and what I knew, that that is a significant part of the healing process. And when you bring that for clients um, to to take away the shame, to hear the worst of the worst things they think they've ever done and for you to sit there and say, hey, it's probably because this happened Absolutely. and then this happened and then you had no no better choice than the one you made and it wasn't a great one you know that now but at the time we we can't know what we don't know and you know if you're looking for a blank slate therapist do not come (laughs) to Waco therapy and And it's funny I tell people I'm like if that's what you're looking for I am not your girl (laughs) (laughs) not the one for Um, you not the one I am not the one um yeah absolutely it's it's I don't know it's a lot I, I agree I think trauma is at the basis of so much and shame is so complicated and integrated into our society with taboos and things we choose not to talk about especially in Waco and the Bible Belt Um, and I think shame thrives in darkness and so when we bring that to light (laughs) is when um, it can kind of crumble but until then it'll I say it's like a poison it'll eat you from the inside out Um, And shame, I think a lot of times also it goes hand in hand, like what we talked about with medical PTSD, no matter what the diagnosis or the condition is, there's something about um, thinking something is wrong with your body, your Mm -hmm. body turned on you. Not everybody has this. You have this. Something about you. Yeah. What's wrong with me? Or, you know, depending on, you know, what you believe, what did I do to cause this? Mm. Why, was, why did this happen to me and not happen to other people? If you bring religion into it, I heard a lot of, I got a lot of prayers when I was sick. Um, I also, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, it, that can get kind of mucky as well when it's just um, kind of deciding, yeah. It, does that make you feel better or does that make you feel like if someone passes away, they didn't get enough prayers, they didn't fight hard enough, or, yeah. you know, I don't know. It, it kind of just adds on some kind of shame with that toxic positivity as well. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you bring up toxic positivity. Like, I think I am both a very positive person and a very dark person at the yeah. same time, <laughs> which I love about myself. I love the darkness, and the positivity is... Um, it comes from inspiration Mm -hmm. that I, I draw from women like you. I draw from my patients that people can overcome such remarkably horrible circumstances and still shine love and light into the world. And I think about sometimes when I get like very in my feels and I'm like, nobody knows (laughs) my story and I hear all these trauma stories and it's just kind of this like, um, like self masturbatory. I need to interview you. (laughs) I need to have a switch the seats. We (laughs) we will have a switch the seats at some point. But you know, then I realize like, wow, I'm strong. Absolutely. And holy shit, that person is a miracle. Not a miracle happened to them. They are a miracle. And that's where my positivity comes from. It's in. Mm-hmm. It's like the no mud, no lotus. In the midst of the muck, beauty can still arise. A therapist who can connect with someone in a, such a unique way can arise out of that. And And... I don't think it's toxic. I just think it's positivity. Yes. Well, <laughs> there's a difference. The The example that I kind of came up with, because I could never think of like, how do I describe this? It's like, if you and I are walking together on a path through Cameron Park, did I already tell you this? No, Maybe I, I didn't. It. Okay. If you and I were walking in a park together, I slip and I like break my leg and I fall into like a ditch, right? 
very on brand <laughs> in this situation. Um, so I'm like, okay, you need to call like for help. So you're like on the phone, you're calling, you're calling. After that, you have a couple of choices. Toxic positivity is leaning over the, over the edge saying like, hey, it's it's not that bad. At least it's not both of your legs. Isn't it you a beautiful know? day out? <laughs> it's though? nice. Hey, at least it's not raining. And I know that it's so easy to be like, but it's looking on the bright side. Like they're trying to be helpful. How about you <laughs> crawl down in here with, you make your call, you crawl down in here with me. And what I like to call it is sitting in the suck yeah. and sit there with me and say, I am so sorry that this is happening. Maybe make a little dark joke about it, you know. I mean, but that's for me. I'm I'm okay with that. But, but it's not the leaning over and watching someone suffer and saying like, at least it's not this, or hey, it could be so much worse. Um, but it's getting down in there with them and maybe saying, hey, it won't always be like this, but it's like this right now, and it's hard, and I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the best things I did when I was sick was I told my best friend cause she said like, I don't know what to say to you. Like it's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, cause a lot of people are aware of like, I don't want to complain to someone who has cancer, you know, like, mm-hmm. and I told her, I said, if you don't know what to do, just say, I don't know what to say. I'm sorry. That sucks. Mm-hmm. To this day, <laughs> if I'm having a bad, she'll, she will say like, I don't know what to say, but that really sucks. I'd be so mad if I was you, you know, I would be yes. blah, blah, blah. Like that's all I need is for you to say, I don't know what to say. That's better than trying to make the situation lighter by being like, God has a plan. Hey, yeah, God has a plan. Hey, he wouldn't have put you through this if you couldn't overcome it or, you know, just like that doesn't help. It, it doesn't help me. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help the situation. Like mm-hmm. call the cops, get down in this ditch with me and sit with me until they get here. Our society does not equip people to offer true compassion, which is to suffer with the other. Mm-hmm. And and I hear this all the time, and I've experienced it, this kind of the toxic positivity that's also kind of like a spiritual bypassing. It's mm-hmm. like, and, and most of the time it does come from people comforting themselves. Absolutely. But when they view your pain, I comfort myself by saying, well, God has a plan and that makes me feel good. But this person who's suffering, it isolates them more and more. And so, you know, listeners take out a pen and write down, I'm sorry, I don't know what to say this sucks yes just please write that down put that like memorize it put in a note in your iphone um because that is what is needed when you are seeing a friend suffer um and and it's okay we will accept i don't know what to say yeah it's better than you not responding and me feeling like i told you too much or i'm a downer i'm a bummer there's a lot of shame from being like, I don't have a lot of positive things to say right now. And someone mm-hmm. just being like, man, that sucks. Like, doesn't feel like anything's going your way. Like, you're not going to make it worse. You're validating. Yes. You know, you're making them feel seen. Another thing I would tell people is it's more helpful for you to ask, hey, what are you feeling today versus how are you feeling? Um, yeah, what Because in a society, we, you know, we want, it's like, hey, how are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Like, very surface level. And anytime people would ask me, how are you feeling? It's like, I'm sore, but like, I'm good. But if they're like, what are you feeling? It's like, oh, today I'm really exhausted and my bones yeah. hurt. And it just invites a more genuine response, I think. Absolutely. Gosh, that whole like, how are you doing today? That is socially mm. normed. <laughs> it's more exhausting to me to oh. than having an actual conversation. It is. And strangers will ask. And, you know, I got to a point, like you were saying, like, you don't give so many shits about what other Mm -hmm. people think where I was like I will not lie anymore about anything and so like people at the store or a friend how are you surviving and surviving (laughs) just became because it's like a an invitation for a one word exchange Mm -hmm. and I refused to lie because everybody says good and it's not Mm -hmm. true but what was true was I was surviving and in the absence of more connectedness of for more words you know that was that was my reality and and I'd like to think that that kind of probably like shocked a bunch of people or they were like ew gross but maybe it was like oh maybe I have permission to to just like be surviving and not have to perform as though everything's good all the time absolutely so many of those it, it is absolutely performing that performative like 
everything's good, kids are good, things are fine, job is good. Like, no, unless you're, like, the luckiest person in the world and everything in your life is good, and I highly doubt it. Um, yeah, I don't think that exists, <laughs> but I don't know if I'm just, like, pessimistic. I don't know. No, I mean, I don't – there's always a part – but I also – it's like you said earlier, healing's a journey, but I think mental health and just in general learning about ourselves and the – I mean, that's a constant process. It's never over. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I ever want – to get to a point where everything in life is just good. Because then what am I working for? Then it's boring, you know? Yes. I think about this too. I'm like, like even after you die and this idea of heaven, I've been talking about deconstruction mm-hmm. earlier today. I'm like, like eternal joy and happiness would kind of bore me. Like that makes me existentially a little bit anxious. I don't know what my like ideal after would be. But yeah, I don't want everything in the world. Yeah, I don't want it. I don't It'll be too simple. And I don't know, you and I like to dig into the hearts and minds uh-huh. of people and maybe that's just our jam, but but it's also something that regardless of whatever happens after this is probably a really healthy way for us to view the world that we live in because there will be pain and there will be joy. And just because I've gotten through this trauma doesn't mean that something else won't happen. But it's it's how am I going to face the duality that it's both and? Absolutely. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. It's it's both. It's and. It's everything. Sometimes it can be nothing. <laughs> you can feel that way. I mean, yeah, it's things are mess. Life is messy. And beautiful. And absolutely beautiful. And even when it's not... You know, I I don't know that I believe, yeah, everything happens for a reason, but I think that, um, I don't know, everything, we take something from everything. There's learning to be had. Absolutely. So I know that um, we are both beginning to do coaching as Mm -hmm. well as traditional psychotherapy that we've been doing in our non-traditional way that we do it. (laughs) Um, But you have such a heart for other women who have gone through this. Um, Tell me about what it means to you, like the, the giftedness of your experience and how you are stewarding that moving forward with other women. Yeah, so really I want to you know, coaching is kind of like the catch-all right now when it comes to just kind of outside therapy, but really walking alongside someone um, and just making sure, holding them accountable that they are taking time for themselves um, when people are sick. And and it can even be family members, people who are loving someone who is sick. Um, You know, I think checking in making sure that you're taking care of your mental health, taking, making sure that you're taking time for yourself, um, setting boundaries is a big one saying, no, I don't want visitors not feeling like you have to say yes, because people are offering things to you. Um, I kept taking coloring books. I have like 50 coloring books in my house and I should have just said, Hey, I don't need any more coloring books, but I was just like, no, I feel bad. They keep bringing them. And set those boundaries, empower yourself, but also walking alongside people when it comes to finding the right doctors and mm-hmm. advocating for yourself, um, preparing for surgery. What is this going to look like? What is recovery going to look like? There's there's so many times that I just wished I had someone next to me, you know, figuratively, that was had been through it before, yes. who could relate. Um you know, I, when I was working with oncology patients, I remember once helping a mom write a letter to her daughter explaining that she was going to die. Mm. And at the time I just didn't, I thought about that so much when I was sick beforehand, it was very sad and it was serious, but after it was crushing, it was crushing. I didn't, I don't have children, but imagining having to write that letter. Mm. Um, and so things like that with just, you know, my experience with talking to family members and, and sharing your story and advocating, also turning what you're going through into to power it can be extremely empowering. I do everything I can to work with organizations in doing interviews and talking about mental health and breast cancer and um, 
however much you want to share your story, there is a space for you to share it afterwards. Mm-hmm. I love, I love how you have used your experience not only as a therapist to deepen your therapeutic ability with lots of different populations, um, not just uh, patients with with medical trauma or cancer. Mm-hmm but also to gift to people the things that you wish that you had had. And even this entire episode today has been filled with, I think, beautiful gems um, of empowering information for people. When you are going through a trauma, you are so disempowered. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to have someone with this knowledge that can say, hey, this is an option. Also, what you're feeling is really normal. And also it won't last. Mm -hmm. Things get better. And have you thought about this? You know, it's just such a gift, um, that you that you get to offer not only your clients but the world i think you know low-key flex <laughs> i can still be in allure magazine i'm sitting <laughs> over here like maybe i'm a little wake famous like sometimes <laughs> i'm on the news and i talk about seasonal affective disorder and she's like yeah i'm i'm gonna be in allure i'm like okay um I'm gonna stop talking about being on the local news but I just there's no competition here it's just I stand in great awe and privilege of sharing space with you I appreciate you so much I appreciate you it's um yeah it's I would say there's a lot of positives that have come out of and not even positives I mean, yeah, I guess of the situation but just I would say the biggest is yeah being able to Share my story and empower people. Advocate for yourself. Shop around for doctors. You don't have to do what they say. If it feels weird, it's then find something that doesn't, you know. Um, but, yeah, I just I think people need to be talking about it more, um, medical trauma in general, because mm-hmm. um, I think it's more prevalent than absolutely. people think. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. (laughs) Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this. I mean, I, this is my favorite thing ever (laughs) because I get to have Megan in my life and continue to get to know her and be inspired by her. And, um, what a gift she is to all of us. And, and I hope that this, um, this episode has been an opportunity to expand your mind and your heart and to know more of the things that maybe you didn't know. And, and even, you know, I, I told you guys to get pens out (laughs) to (laughs) equip you with tools to navigate the world in a more loving and compassionate way. Um, not just for your loved ones, but, but for anyone that you might meet. And so, you know, I stand in awe of this woman, um, and that, that gives me good vibes, good feelings. So mm-hmm. I hope that you get to walk away with that as well today. Thank you, sweet Megan, for being on the podcast. Thank Appreciate you. Ya. Thank you. And we will catch you all next time on the next episode of Sister Speak. All right. Have a great week, guys. Bye. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Emma J. Church for updates and podcast schedule. Catch the show on your favorite podcast platform or at roguemedianetwork.com. has been a Rogue Media Podcast.